Thank you, my good brother and friend, Rolando. Let's take our Bibles this morning and look once again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. As I continue to talk about Jesus Christ, portraits of Christ in the book of Hebrews. This morning I want to talk about Jesus, the faithful son. In some sense, we are all unfaithful sons and daughters, but we thank God for Jesus, the faithful son. Reading in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 this morning. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. One simple main thought of our text this morning, and that is simply this. Consider Jesus. Contemplate. Examine intensely. Observe very carefully Jesus Christ. The implication we'll see is not only that he is of such extraordinary value, and his attraction is so glorious that he is worthy of our intense focus and our deepest contemplation. We are encouraged to contemplate him so that as we see him in his faithfulness, we ourselves will become faithful to our heavenly calling. As we contemplate Jesus, I hope it will do for you what it did for me. It brought me to repentance. And it brought me to assurance that in Jesus Christ, my faithfulness, my unfaithfulness is overwhelmed, is replaced by his faithfulness. As you and I live the Christian life, we are fully aware that there are ebbs and flows in our walk with Christ. There are ups and downs. There, there is faithfulness and unfaithfulness. There are times when our hearts are hot and warm with love, and there are times when our hearts are cold. Sometimes we are passionate. Other times we are apathetic. This is characteristic of our journey of faith often, it has its ebbs and flows. On the surface, it might appear that these fluctuations in our walk 
are because of the changing circumstances that we face. And we do face changing circumstances. I mean, we, we face the good and the bad, prosperity and loss, sickness and health, new friendships, betrayal in old friendships. We experience the delight of good news and the, the disappointment of tragic news. We live in a world, we walk a path, we are taking a journey that is filled with changing circumstances. And sometimes these circumstances are so impactful, they are so distracting that they, they sort of grab our attention for the moment. And in that moment, we take our eyes off of Jesus. It's like driving down the highway on the road to your destination. And you have your eyes fixed on the road. I know when you take the class to ride a motorcycle, they emphasize very clearly you never take your eyes off of where you want to go because your motorcycle will follow your eyes. If you look to the side, your motorcycle will go that way. If you look to the ground immediately in front of you, you will dump your motorcycle. If you're coming around a curb, don't look at the curb. Look at where you want to come out of the curb because your motorcycle will always follow your eyes. Keep your eyes on the road. And if you're a wise driver, you are always looking at the road. You have peripheral vision. You can see other things that are happening, but you dare not take your eyes off the road. But we're easily distracted. That text comes in, and we look down, and you're in the ditch. Or that billboard is so appealing that you look up for a moment, and you're hitting the guardrail. We are so easily distracted and it only takes a moment before we find ourselves in danger if we don't keep our eyes on the road. And while it's true that changing circumstances may present the initial distraction, the real problem is always we don't pay attention to where we're going. And if it's not a distraction, then if you're like me, I often drive tired. And I think I am watching the road. Matter of fact, I'm watching the road so closely that I'm in a daze and I become drowsy and I find myself drifting and thank God for those rumble strips uh, that they have that, that remind you you are getting off of the road. This is the Christian life. If it's not distractions that take our eyes off of Jesus, then it's the drowsiness, the weariness, the difficulty of the journey that we're taking. But he warned us earlier that if we don't look to Jesus, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? To take your eyes off of Christ, to not consider Christ, only means danger. And so the corrective measure is always keep your eyes on the road.
consider Jesus Christ? And so this morning, I would like to answer that question, why consider Jesus, with, see, with three simple answers from our text. Why should we consider? Why should we focus on, examine intensely, observe carefully Jesus Christ, first of all? Because it is the reasonable response, considering who you are in Jesus Christ. Just a couple of ways in which he addresses those to whom he writes, which, which grab my heart and remind me of what Jesus Christ has done for me and why I ought to consider him, fix my eyes on him. He calls them, first of all, holy brothers. Now, we can read over that very quickly without any impact on our lives at all. But when I hear that, when I hear that I am being called holy, that strikes my heart. Because I know that often that is not the case. That is not my nature, that is not always my heart, that is not always my mind. And yet, God looks at me. God has this writer address Hebrew believers who are struggling in their faith. Some who are thinking about departing from their faith. All of whom are not perfect, are not holy in and of themselves. And he calls them holy brothers. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't say, you're holy, so that you can puff up your chest and throw back your shoulders and lift up your eyes and look down on everyone else who is unholy. He calls us holy brothers and sisters to bring us to gratitude, to bring us to humility, to bring us to, to thanksgiving and joy because I know I'm not holy and yet in Jesus Christ, God calls me holy. And I'm holy together with many other imperfect brothers and sisters. We are a holy family in Jesus Christ. And not only holy, he says, you are sharers of a heavenly calling. By heavenly calling, I assume he means not only the source from which this call comes, this is God's call to you, but it's also the destiny to which this call takes us. It's a heavenly calling. It comes from heaven, and it's calling us to heaven. This is who you are. Yes, you're walking and living in a, in a broken world, a difficult world at times. Your journey is tough. It's full of distractions. You get weary along the way. Sometimes you, you fall along the way. But your identity, who you are, despite your circumstances, is you are holy brothers and you partake as a joint heir with Christ a heavenly calling. You join with your elder brother. 
And then later in verse 6, he tells them that you are members of God's house. That God is building a house which he has been from the beginning. It began in the garden temple. It moved to the tabernacle, then to the temple, and then to the worldwide church of Jesus Christ, and ultimately to a new heaven and new earth in which will dwell the entire family of God. God is building a house, and much better than the house that you and I are building. You know, I encourage young couples when they're getting married to build a house of mercy, that you are marrying a sinner. You will be living with a sinner, and you will find, be finding out the worst about each other. But when you come home, when your spouse comes home, they should find someone who knows the worst about them and yet shows them mercy. Well, this is God's house. It is the ultimate mercy that we live in a house, a house of peace. There's no fighting. There's no condemnation from our Father. There's no criticism. It is a house of peace. It is a house of mercy. It is a house of grace. And we are members of God's household. Later, the author will tell us in Hebrews 12 that this particular house that God is building, this kingdom of God, when God will shake everything at the end, when he will bring his judgment and bring everything to destruction, the only thing that will remain is the kingdom of God, the house of God. We're holy brothers. We have a heavenly calling. We are members of God's house. And let me say, if this is not you this morning, if you still are looked at by God as unholy and defiled, if you are, instead of having a heavenly calling, if you are on your road, the road to a Christless hell, if you are not a member of God's house, but rather living in a house that's destined for destruction, then this morning consider Jesus because he can make the unholiest, the most unholy, holy. He can take you from that road to destruction and put you on a road to eternal life. He can make you a member of God's eternal family. Consider Jesus because of who you are in him. But secondly, why should we consider Jesus? Because it is the reasonable response considering who he is. Not just who am I in Christ, but who is Jesus? The writer tells us that Jesus is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. That he is, in simple words, the one who is sent from God to you. He's the messenger, that special messenger of God. He's the apostle. But he's also the mediator. 
He is the one who takes you to God, who atones for your sin, who is the priest who brings you into the presence of a holy God. He is the, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. I believe in Jesus Christ our Lord. And who is he? He's the one who came from God, and he's the one who takes me to God. And then he tells us that he is the faithful son, greater than Moses. And there he goes again with one of his comparisons as he compares Christ first to the angels and now to Moses. He is greater than Moses. He is the faithful son. And in Judaism, who would be more revered than Moses who brought that holy law of God. But he's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham, we'll see later. He's greater than David. He is greater. He's a greater person than Moses. Moses was the servant of the Lord. And so was Jesus. He called himself the servant of the Lord. But Jesus is more than a servant. Jesus is the Son of God who serves his Father. And he's a greater person because he is not only the Son of God, as we saw earlier in Hebrews, he is the second Adam. He's the perfect man. He's the one who succeeds where Adam fails. Because of his victory, the Father leads us to glory along with him, not with Moses, but with Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews will later say, this Jesus is holy. He is harmless. He is undefiled. He is separate from sinners. He's made higher than the heavens. He is greater as a person because as a man, he knows our suffering, but he knows it without sin at all. But he not only knows our suffering, he has the power to deliver us from death and to sustain us through life. Jesus is a greater person. And he has a greater work, our text will say. Moses was actually part of the house that Jesus is building. He was part of, we would say, of true Israel, of believing Israel within national Israel. Jesus was, Moses was part of the house, but Jesus is a servant in the house that God builds. And if God builds it, then Jesus builds it also because Jesus is God. He is part of the triune God. Moses' work was one of preparation in bringing the law. Moses' work was to expose men to their sin. Moses led in the birth of a great nation, but eventually that great nation apostatized and was destroyed. And was destroyed. But Jesus' work is that of a savior. He dies the death that men deserve. He works to bring to completion the restoration of all things. One day he will bring in the eternal kingdom where everything will be in harmony. Only Jesus can do that. 
the kingdom of God, the house of God that is being built and that will stand forever can only be built by God. History tells us, it proves to us that all human attempts to bring in the kingdom will fall. All ancient empires fell. All modern empires fall and fell and will fall. Jesus, he tells us, has a greater word. Moses' word was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Jesus is that which was spoken of. He is the word of God made flesh. All of the institutions, the system of worship of the Old Testament, all of it points to Jesus Christ. Moses was pointing to Jesus Christ. He is the eternal reality while Moses was only a temporary shadow pointing the way to him. But our text also says he has a greater glory. And certainly Moses had a glory. We, we read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. When he came down from the presence of God, his face shone. He had a glory. But it was a fading glory. And he put a mask on so that they could not view the passing of that glory. It was temporary. But Jesus has a glory that surpasses and a glory that is permanent, a glory that remains. Moses had the glory of a faithful man, but a man whose life was marked with imperfection. Jesus has the glory of a faithful man, of a perfect man who never sinned. Moses had the glory of a great man, a great leader, but only a man. Well, Jesus has the glory of a perfect man, but also he is God, very God. Moses had the glory of serving in God's house. Jesus has the glory of building the house and being the son of glory in that house. Moses had the fading glory of a shadow. Jesus, the lasting glory of an eternal reality. This is why our author says, consider Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? He has a superior, unfading glory. And when we are captured by the superior glory of Christ. When we are truly fixing our eyes on him, when we consider Jesus, we will no longer deny him. We will no longer be ashamed to speak of him. We will no longer settle for cheap substitutes like the illicit promises of money and power and sex which may offer a few moments of pleasure, a few moments of glory, a few moments of satisfaction without any possibility of an eternally satisfying, God-honoring relationship. 
And the only way we avoid it is not by the discipline of, of, of running from sin. We avoid it by the discipline of looking to Jesus Christ. We all know, I know, that we have taken our eyes off, the, off of the road in our spiritual journey. We've become distracted by alluring objects, or we've become drowsy because of the length and difficulty of the journey. And sometimes, some of us have landed in the ditch, and we have been hurt and destroyed to some extent, but we're still alive. And we may be injured, we may not be totally destroyed, and Jesus, our faithful shepherd, still pursues us, and he takes us, and he brings us back on that road. And let me tell you, if you're alive and off the road today, you can always get back on. You can always begin again to put your eyes on Jesus. You may follow him with a limp, as Jacob did when he wrestled with God and God humbled him and broke him and he walked away with a limp. You may walk down that road the rest of your life with a limp, looking at Jesus, still being consumed with his glory. Jesus has a greater faithfulness. Moses was faithful to him who appointed him. For Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. But Jesus' faithfulness is superior. Moses died, and essentially he died because he disobeyed God. He got angry. And he never walked into that land. He only saw it from the mountaintop. But Jesus was faithful to death, even the death of the cross. He said no to every temptation along the way. He faced everything that came his way without sin. And when his father said, it's finally time for you to die a death you don't deserve, Jesus said, I'll do it. No man takes my life from me but I lay it down of myself. I will be faithful to the death of the cross. And we should never forget his faithfulness. Because when you are overwhelmed, if not today, perhaps tomorrow, but if not tomorrow, at some point in your life, you will sit down overwhelmed with your unfaithfulness. hopefully looking to Christ again will bring you to repentance and bring you to renewed assurance that even though I have been unfaithful, God can never deny himself. He can never be unfaithful. And Jesus is faithful in my stead. His faithfulness is mine. But thirdly, why consider Jesus? It is reasonable 
considering what is at stake if you don't. And here we have one of those uh, warnings that we find throughout the book of Hebrews. Where the writer says, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Here's the fatal distraction. To abandon hope, to abandon confidence, to abandon Jesus Christ, not to get off the road, but to abandon him, to say, even though I'm fallen, even though I've been unfaithful, I can no longer look to Christ to rescue me. To abandon him is danger. We are not his house, he's saying, if we abandon confidence and our boasting and our hope. The writer of Hebrews will argue throughout the book of Hebrews that perseverance in faith is a test of reality. And we know that when he talks about perseverance in faith, he is not talking about a perfect 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week exercise in faith where you never take your eyes off of Jesus because none of us have that. But he's talking about the kind of faith that even when you've been distracted and found yourself on the side of the road, or you've gotten weary and you've, you've made an, an error that has put you in a bad place, that you, by the conviction of the Spirit of God, find your way back to confidence and boasting in our hope. If my unfaithfulness is because of an appealing distraction or an overwhelming drowsiness, it is remediable. It is forgivable. It can result in restoration. But if my unfaithfulness is because I have abandoned the road that I should be traveling, I am no longer interested in the destination, Jesus, and the calling that is giving me. Then I am in danger because how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The writer would argue that considering Jesus Christ, finding our eyes on him, finding our way back to him, is a mark of family identity. It is who I am. It is what God has put in my heart. And even though I'm, one, I'm by the side of the road and I'm lying in the ditch, I cannot get away from that I belong to Jesus Christ. As a Christian, we are either looking to Christ and pursuing faithfulness to Christ? Or we are living with 
distractions, but at the same time with conviction about our unfaithfulness to Christ. You're never happy in your sin. You may be in sin, but you're never happy in your sin. You may smile, but your heart is aching if the Spirit of God is living there. But if we live freely and happily in unfaithfulness, if we give ourselves with complete abandon to disobedience and sin, then the writer would say, you are not part of God's house. Consider Jesus. Why? Because think of who you are in Christ. God calls you holy. He's given you a heavenly calling. He's made you a member of his house of mercy. Consider Jesus. Why? Because Take a look at him. Who is he? God sent him to you so he could bring you to him. And he's faithful. He will never let you down. Consider Jesus. Why? Because to not consider Jesus is danger. For a moment in closing this morning, let me talk practically about how do we consider Jesus Christ? How do we look to him and examine him closely and observe him carefully? Let me just suggest a few things. First of all, live every day with gratitude for your salvation. Make it a point every day to think through what God has done for you in Christ and let that be your highest, your deepest gratitude. Look every day at yourself, secondly. Know your sinfulness. Know your weaknesses. Know your failures. And know the grace of God in your life. Thirdly, as you read your Bible, I would underline and memorize every verse that specifically and dramatically and pointedly points you to Jesus Christ. Memorize as much as you can about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, it's helpful, or maybe this is fifthly, it's helpful to to listen to songs about Jesus and to sing songs about Jesus. Do everything you can that will bring your mind, your thought to Jesus Christ. Talk about him to others because every time you share your faith in Christ, you affirm your love for Christ. You strengthen your faith in Christ. So talk to him about others. Read good books about Jesus. First of all, read the Bible because it's all about Jesus. Read John Piper's book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. What a title. Man, if that could characterize our life, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. 
or John Stott's wonderful book, The Incomparable Christ, or Philip Yancey's The Jesus I Never Knew, and there's so many good books, biblical, theological books that'll point you to Jesus. And then avail yourself of God's means of grace to point you to Jesus, the church, and scripture, and prayer, and worship, and the Lord's table that all point us as we travel this difficult road in which are many distractions and on which we often become weary. We need to be pointed with Jesus. Or as he said early, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Because if we can see him that way, if we can rejoice and rest in his perfect faithfulness, then we will experience grace that will overcome our weaknesses. It will lift us from our despair. It will turn around our failures. It will forgive our sins. And eventually, it will bring us safely home. Consider Jesus. There's no better advice. It's simple, and yet it's profound and life-changing. Whatever is going on in your life today, consider Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we do rejoice that though having not seen him, we love him. And though now we see him not, yet believing, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And Father, we pray that that moment when we feel that deeply, perhaps even in this moment, that moment when we are caught up with the glory and the, the wonder and the awe of Christ, that that moment could become more characteristic of all of our lives. I pray for those that are on the side of the road, damaged, but not dead. I pray that the good shepherd Jesus would lift them up and put them back on the road and walk with them through this journey and take them safely home. Father, bring us to humility, bring us to repentance, and bring us to assurance that Jesus Christ is all we need, in whose name we pray, amen.